Does the world really need another podcast? There are over 5 million podcasts available globally with 70 million episodes that you can catch in 150 languages. So why go to the trouble of adding yet another? In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. So if one heart can be touched, if one mind can be renewed, and if just one life could be transformed, then I think it's worth it. This is one more cast. Hey everyone, this is Neil Mack. My wife Sonia and I lead the Young Marriage Group at Calvary Tabernacle. If you're between the ages of 1835 and you're married, we'd love to have you join our group. We have classes every Wednesday evening in the portico at Calvary Tabernacle. We also have several fun events throughout the year. Uh, sometimes pop-up events, sometimes events that we plan for months in advance. Either way, whether you come to our class or you check out one of our events, we would always love to have you join us. These next three podcasts are going to be on the topic of emotional quotient. And these classes took place on Wednesday evenings in the portico at Calvary Tabernacle. The classes were taught by Reverend J.C. Burkhead. J.C. has a master's in clinical counseling from Grace College. She's also an adjunct instructor at Indiana Bible College. She's a guidance counselor at Calvary Christian School. She's also a mental health counselor at Calvary Tabernacle. She's well qualified and you'll hear in her session, she has a passion for emotional quotient, helping people understand interpersonal relationships and connectivity. And she's absolutely a woman of God. We hope you enjoy these sessions. So let's kind of review. I know some of you weren't here, but I'm gonna test your knowledge. We talked about the first element of EQ being self-awareness. Does anyone remember the second? It's very similar. Self-regulation. Self-regulation. Well, today we're going to finish it up. We also have motivation, empathy, and I'm saving this one till next week, social skills. Mm. Yeah, that's the best one. <laughs> I love that one. Well, um, you could kind of break up these five things into two categories. The first, which is what we're finishing today, are personal skills. Starting with self-awareness. Oh, hmm, that's an unfortunate typo. Um, so self-awareness is the skill of being aware and understanding your own emotions as they occur, as they change, right? So it's wrong to think of emotions as positive or negative, right? So is a brick bad or good? Well, if I threw it through Brother Stumbo's windshields, wouldn't be very helpful, would it? But if I built like a church or a hospital with it, maybe more helpful, right? So it's important to understand that emotions are neither positive or negative. Instead, we think of them in terms of helpful or unhelpful, all right? So this is just a review. So for example, anger associated with a negative emotion. However, it can be completely reasonable 
and appropriate in certain circumstances. That's why the Bible says, be ye angry and sin not, right? You can be that, but watch your behaviors, right? Emotional intelligence is what helps us to recognize our anger, to recognize whichever emotion and understand why it's occurring, right? So effective self-awareness of feelings and emotions, that's what helps you to improve even your confidence or your self-esteem, right? And then we talked about self-regulation. This is very similar to just self-control, really. Uh, conscientiousness, trustworthiness, adaptability, right? Since you've already learned how to be aware of your emotions, then the skill of self-regulation is what makes them appropriate or proportional, right? So that's just really self-management. And those skills are related to the emotions that you feel at any given time, but it's how well you manage them. Self-control is fundamental to this, right? But there's other aspects, all right? Um, and that can relate to why you do what you do whether you behave in a way that's recognized as good or bad. Um, and that's going to be dependent on you, on your circumstance, on your life. So we're finishing up personal skills today with our third, which is the final personal skill of emotional intelligence is motivation. All right, so self-motivation includes our, our personal drive to improve, achieve. Uh, it's the way we commit all right, self-motivation really ties into what we've been talking about in Young Marrieds, which is time management. All right, so if you're self-motivated, you don't make unreasonable demands on yourself. You learn to be assertive rather than just saying yes to the demands of other people because you know your motivation type. You know what you can or cannot do. Motivation is what pushes us to achieve our goals. It's what makes us feel more fulfilled. It helps improve our quality of life. So what does motivation include? I said it's our personal desire or our de drive to achieve. So you could think of a personal drive to achieve as ambition, right? We know that certain people are perhaps more ambitious than others um, or perhaps even personal empowerment. However, it's worth thinking about in terms of mindset. And there are two types of mindsets, fixed mindsets and growth mindsets. If you have a fixed mindset, you believe that talent is just ingrained, that we can't change our level of ability, that what I am good at, that's the only thing I'm gonna be good at. If I'm bad at something, I'm probably just gonna be bad at that. So let me focus on my strengths and ignore the rest. A growth mindset says that I can improve my skill through hard work and effort. All right, and research shows that the people who believe they can improve are far more likely to achieve in whatever area they choose. That sounds so simple, right? Until you're actually in a place of learning. <laughs> and you're like, wow, this is really hard, right? And I really do believe that life is not full of ups and downs as much as it is uh, learning and mastering and learning and mastering and learning and mastering. And sometimes we're in a learning time in a learning season if you will and that can feel really low you can be like man i'm just not getting this i'm not motivation is what keeps you moving forward even in that time of learning to say i can grow i can change i can master this whether it takes me two months or seven years or a lifetime i can grow i can i can get out of this 
right? So a, a growth mindset is important um, in, in a personal drive to succeed. And that can be tricky because who likes to learn? We say we like to learn, but it can be really challenging, right? Um, how many of you have ever learned an instrument? All right, so you know like the, the part where you're just getting started, you're kind of excited about it. It's like new and fun, and then it gets really hard. And it's like if you would just get over that hill, then things get easier. But most people stop at that point where it's no longer fun and exciting and new and it's difficult. And we can't really push, push through it, right? That's where motivation comes to play. How much of this is, is on me to want to, to drive, to improve, to achieve, to keep going? Motivation is also in, uh, involves our commitment to our goals. All right, it's the new year. We all set goals and perhaps we should say intentions, all right? Some of them can be lofty, um, but there is considerable evidence that even if it's kind of just an anecdote, that goal setting is important to our overall, our general well-being. That we were made with two primary purposes. First, for relationship. I think we talked about that last week. But secondly, to have purpose to find meaning, that those two things are kind of hardwired into your brain. And so in our own motivation and our own seeking our goals, we're, we're finding fulfillment even in those kind of learning moments. Even if you haven't made it to the mastery level or that, that high point, you're still kind of feeling fulfilled because you are trying to achieve, you are working towards that. So it, it certainly makes sense that if you aim at nothing, it's easy to achieve it and that most of us need something in our lives to aim towards. And having an awareness of where you wish to be or an understanding of how you plan to get there is vital to staying motivated, right? And I know this is kind of redundant because we just talked about time management, but that's a, a key player, if you will, in your own motivation and your own commitment to those goals. Because if I don't have a plan, it's, it's incredibly hard for me to, to keep going. Or if I don't have a vision of where I'm going, why am I even trying, right? Next is our initiative uh, or readiness to act on opportunities. So initiative is effectively the ability to take advantage of opportunities when they occur, when there is a moment to. It's easy to hesitate and then the opportunity be gone. Um, however, the old sayings like, look before you leap, fools rush in, right? Where angels fear to tread. Like all of those things, they have a lot of truth in them because it's important to think things through and make the right decision for you. But initiative can therefore be considered a combination of both courage and risk management, good risk management, where you're wondering, is this the right step for me? I'm weighing the risk and reward, finding out what is right, I'm praying about it. And, it, and that kind of management is necessary so that you can identify that when the right opportunities come and they have the appropriate level of risk for you, and also in the same moment, I have the courage to kind of overcome my fear or my hesitation. And those things are hard to hold at the same time because there can be part of you that says, yes, like there is a risk to, to this, whatever the decision is. And then I also want to kind of be courageous and, and do the thing that my heart longs to do. All right. So it's an important part of emotional intelligence is even knowing and weighing those things out. When do I know? when to step, when to hesitate. 
Motivation is also, um, it includes optimism and resilience. I know you all know what optimism is, but it is the ability to look on the bright side of things. But resilience is to be able to bounce back, right? Or keep positive in the face of, of those challenges. Or in those moments, it's the ability to, to understand that they may be, optimism and resilience may be related, but they're not exactly the same. So what makes resilient people resilient? Well, they use their ability to think in a way that manages perhaps unhelpful emotions and responses to events. To notice, okay, this is my, my response, my emotional response, and how do I reframe this to work for me? If I have a, an emotion of response, then I'm going to use rational thinking to kind of examine it and if necessary, overcome my reactions that I don't understand or even perhaps my reactions that aren't entirely logical. And so I'm able to bounce back from having kind of those negative or unhelpful emotional responses and say, okay, what can I do to, to reframe this, to look at this in a different way? That's a part of motivation. It's what keeps you going. It's what keeps you going in, in your relationships. It's what keeps you going at work. It's what keeps you going in, in everything is to say, okay, where is the, the positivity? Where is the reframing in this moment? That just because there was this difficult moment doesn't mean that I should just give it up. Or all of this is just, I should just give all of this up. It's the motivation, that drive that keeps you going. Now here's the tricky part. Motivation can be intrinsic or extrinsic. So it could be just in yourself, or it can be, you could be motivated by external factors. Some of you may work a job, the only reason you're going is because you know you get, will get a paycheck, right? But perhaps there's something else in there. There's some, some other part that you're like, you know what, I really do love this, and I do get some sense of fulfillment and achievement from my work, all right? So we're gonna find out what motivates you. There's different aspects. So if you wanna pull out your phones, and scan this QR code. It's gonna take you to a little quiz. It should take less than five minutes. Oh, no, no. <laughs> they got <gotcha>. you. <laughs> Scroll all the way down and you'll find it. <laughs> Putting in your credit card information. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I guess I have to buy this thing. One thing I tell people when they take a test, if you have to hesitate, it's probably no. 
You may have gotten things, but if you scroll down, you can see the remaining motivators. So um, even if something isn't high, you still probably have a, a percentage of motivation in that, whether it be power or wealth or stability or autonomy or whatever, or meaning or whatever. <laughs> So when we're thinking about self-motivation, it's important to understand what motivates you to do things. All right, so like I said, there's two main types of motivators, intrinsic and extrinsic. So in the simplest way you could think about these two things is um, intrinsic is being related to what we want to do, extrinsic is related to what we have to do, right, what is motivating us. Um, so a more detailed definition is this intrinsic to perform an action or task based on the expected or perceived satisfaction of performing that task. Intrinsic motivators um, are having fun, <laughs> being interested, the personal challenge, right? Extrinsic is to perform an action or task in order to gain some sort of external reward. Earning money, getting good grades, having power, getting, uh, you know, some sort of praise. The, the different people are motivated by different things and at different times in their life this changes. The same task may give somebody else some sort of intrinsic motivation and more extrinsic motivation to other people. But most tasks have a combination of those two things. All right. For example, let me read you a little story. John works because he has to pay his mortgage and feed himself and his family. He gets no satisfaction from his job and there's no chance of promotion. John's motivators are purely extrinsic. Sally works because she loves what she does. She gets enormous satisfaction and self-fulfillment from her work. Sally has enough money put away that she does not need to work. She owns her house outright and can afford to buy what she wants when she wants it. Sally's motivators are purely intrinsic. Now, clearly, Sally and John are at different levels of the spectrum of self-motivation. However, most people fall somewhere in the middle, right? Um, most people do have to work in order to earn money. But at the same time, they also find their day-to-day -day life um, or even their work rewarding or satisfying in, in some other intrinsic way, some job satisfaction, the chance to socialize with colleagues, whatever it may be. This translates also to volunteer work. What is motivating you to be involved at any level in your congregation? Is it extrinsic motivation? Is it intrinsic? And why does this matter? Well, we all have a tendency, first of all, to work better when we love what we're doing. 
Um, it's easier to get out of bed in the morning. You're generally more happy to go to work, but it's really important when we're under stress because it's much easier to cope with stress and long hours if we generally enjoy the work. If for some reason it's you're meeting some sort of challenge, you're achieving something, you're working hard, you're, you're finding some sort of meaning and purpose to what you're doing. All right, so intrinsic motivators play a bigger part in motivating us. Why? Because you can't guarantee the extrinsic. You're not always gonna get a promotion. You're not always gonna get a raise. People aren't gonna praise you for your job. Those things you can't rely on because they're outside of you, all right? But if you do focus on what is the intrinsic motivation, what really motivates me? Do I find some sort of purpose in my job because I feel like that's the place where I can witness to people? Do I find some sort of motivation in my job because I feel like I'm, I'm getting to, to connect and help kids out of school? Do I find some sort of purpose in my job because of fill in the blank? Whatever it is that's most meaningful to you. So you can look at even that, that test that you just took and said, what is the most meaningful thing? Is meaning, is having a meaning and a purpose the thing? Is being a part of a team the thing? What is it that, that really motivates me intrinsically? And then I'm going to move towards those things. Because what if a task has neither intrinsic or extrinsic motivators? What if it has no motivators? Then the obvious conclusion is that you're unlikely to do it because it's going to be pointless. Right? But we, we all know that life doesn't work that way. It doesn't. There are things that you do that you're not even motivated to do at all. And what does that result in? Just feelings of obligation. Right? Obligation motivators are neither intrinsic or extrinsic, but they can still be very powerful. Obligation comes from your own personal ethics and your own sense of duty, your own sense of what is right and wrong. You may feel obligated, perhaps, uh, to go to some sort of social event because you know somebody who's going to be there and you were invited by them, right? There's no obvious extrinsic or intrinsic benefit to you attending except that you don't want to offend your friend. That's it. You don't want to upset them. You like them, right? You're more likely to enjoy the party, however, if you go with some sort of motivator. So in those moments of like where you're finding yourself, and perhaps you're, you're even sitting here saying, man, I think I feel more obligated to do things than motivated to do them. What do I even do with that? So sometimes that's the part of really trying to reframe even the, the situation. So if you go with a positive and open attitude expecting it to be fun, then there is an intrinsic motivator. You can add those motivations and not expect them to just fall into your lap. You get the power to decide that. You just have to make that switch in your own mindset of what am I doing this for? What am I motivated by and can I find that in this situation? Can I find that? Maybe you absolutely do not want to go, but if I can find some sort of meaning because that's high in my motivators, if I can find some sort of sense of autonomy, that's high in my motivators, and then perhaps I can make this a more positive and open experience. That I'm not just doing things out of obligation. Because obligation, like we said, it's a, it's a powerful motivator, but that's not what leads you to finding purpose or feeling fulfillment. That's not gonna keep you going after a while, that's gonna burn you out. 
Because when you get in those moments of, like I said, like we're learning and mastery, learning and mastery, when we're in the learning and we're just doing things out of obligation, 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 we're burning out because we're not really finding any, any sense of purpose or any fulfillment in that. It's going to be much harder to keep feeling motivated, to keep continuing on. So it's an important part of emotional intelligence. Now, we're moving on to what I think is the more fun part of emotional intelligence, which is the interpersonal skills. The interpersonal skills are made up of empathy and social skills. These are the skills that we use to interact with other people. These are the skills that help us to communicate appropriately, build stronger, more meaningful relationships. Emotional intelligence is not just how we understand our own emotions and how we manage our own emotions, but it's also our actions and our behaviors toward other people. Right? And there's two key aspects, empathy and social skills. So empathy helps us to develop a stronger understanding of someone else's experience. And I was talking to the Stombos this week, and it really, I started thinking, I didn't explain empathy very well last week. And I sat in Brother Norman's seat, and that helped me to understand how, what it was like to sit there. But empathy can be more difficult to achieve. Right? Because empathy is not just um, imagining what it would be like to be like you and feeling the things that you're feeling, because in, in reality, that can be really dangerous. So let's say you have a friend who is depressed. If I want to be very empathetic and I just start feeling those same feelings, am I helpful or now am I just depressed also? Right? And, and that can be hard because you do want to be empathetic. You do want to feel those things. You do want to understand them. But that's the difference is, is you have to be able to listen effectively to both verbal and nonverbal messages. You have to be able to understand their body language. You have to understand physical signs of emotion. And you have to ask the right questions at the right time in order to understand their circumstance. So let me use an example. Um, if my mom died, I would feel a particular way. All right. Now, if I were, perhaps I had a friend whose mom died, and I said, man, I can, I'm imagining what it would be like to be in your shoes, and I am crushed, I'm devastated. That doesn't mean that my friend is crushed and devastated. Perhaps my, my friend is very confused because there's also some hope in there. Because their mom was abusive and, and awful. And it was a very unhealthy relationship. Or maybe she had to take care of her and now she's, she's feels some sort of relief now that her mom is dead. For me to take my subjective experience and try to say, I'm trying to understand what you're going through by using my own filter is not empathy. That's not empathy. It's not accurate empathy, all right? What I need to do is understand how do you feel about this situation? So I have to pay attention to your body language, your tone of voice. I have to pay attention to the words that you're using. And when I ask questions, I have to ask the right questions, all right? So it's really a part of, honestly, like this investigation. Not in a, in a way of you're getting something, all right? But in a way of, I want to understand you well. And I want to understand you and your experience. Second is social skills. So social skills really is a wide range of relationship and interpersonal skills. That's why we're going to talk about it next week. And we're going to talk about communication next week. All right, these range from even being a leadership um, to influencing, persuading, managing conflict, 
um, working together as a team, apologizing, like all these things. The term social skills, that covers a variety of skills, a variety of competencies, right? And all of those are rooted in self-esteem and personal confidence. So by developing your social skills, being easy to talk to, being a good listener, being trustworthy, you're also becoming more charismatic, you're becoming more attractive to other people. Not in that kind of way, but just in a, you know, my friend. All right, this in turn then improves your self-esteem and your self-confidence, which then makes it easier for you to have better social skills and create a better positive dialogue, and now you're doing better at that, and now people like you more, and now you're doing better at it. So it's really kind of this really awesome cycle that if you get caught in a good cycle, you'll just keep going. All right, the problem is, is when we make a mistake and we're like, oh, and I get thrown out of it. And now I'm a terrible person, nobody likes me. I'm gonna go eat worms and die, all right? But we just gotta learn how do I get back in that cycle where I can kind of overcome this, this mistake that I made and just start connecting with people. I don't wanna jive, I wanna be part of that cycle again. But I'll teach you that next week, maybe. This week, we're gonna harp on empathy a little bit more. At its simplest, it's the awareness and the feelings and emotions of other people. All right, it is a key element of emotional intelligence because it's the link between you and someone else. It's the bridge, if you will. Because it is how we as individuals understand what other people are experiencing it. And, and then we can understand it as if we were feeling it ourselves. Not that you do, <laughs> because you can't really ever. But it goes beyond sympathy. Sympathy might be just considered feeling for somebody. Empathy is instead feeling with that person through even the use of your own imagination. All right. So Daniel Goleman, he's kind of the founder of Emotional Intelligence, he says that empathy is basically the ability to understand other people's emotions. He also notes that at a deeper level, it's about defining, understanding, and reacting to the concerns and needs that underlie other people's emotions. So it's not just you understanding other people's emotions, but it's understanding how did we get there and what do you need from me? This is key in emotional intelligence. Because I think even last week I may have said like a sign of low emotional intelligence is walking out of the room and being like, I don't understand why we did any of that. I don't understand why they felt that way. I don't understand why they were reacting that way. I don't get it. That's this. It's empathy to say, okay, I've got to understand not only how they're feeling, but then what is underneath that? What may have caused this feeling? What's, what's even triggering this feeling? And then what do I need to do to, to help in this? What did they need me to, to be? How can I help them? So there's five elements of empathy. The first is understanding other people. And this is probably what most people understand um, by empathy. Right. In Goldman's words, it's sensing other people's feelings and pers perspectives. All right. So people who do this, that understand other people, they, tu like they tune into clues. All right. They listen well. They pay attention to other people. All right. Sometimes it's hard because you don't know what you don't know. So you have to look for it. All right. Picking up on subtle cues, almost sub subconsciously. All right. When you know somebody really well, you could probably read their mind without them saying something. You already know what they're thinking, you already know how they're gonna react, but how do you do that with people you don't know very well? It's getting curious about other people. It's wanting, it's wanting to know, because most of the time, 
people want you to understand them. In fact, how many of you have ever done the love languages thing? Thing. I'm not being disparaging. I love the love languages. <laughs> but I really think there probably needs to be a sixth one, if not like the big granddaddy of all love languages, which is really being understood. Because that's really what people want, is for someone to, to understand them truly. That you don't have to like explain yourself. That's why people get so aggravated, even in marriages where you're like, I have to explain to you what I want. I don't have to, you don't just read my mind. Well, it's because we really want to be understood at some level. And that's true with any type of relationship. Any person you encounter, they do want to be understood. And so if we listen well, if we're listening for the right things, instead of what we want from the conversation, that's really how we go all the way back to the very beginning when we're talking about our own self-awareness. We're talking about our own regulation because I could be sitting in a conversation with you and the whole time we're talking, I'm thinking about what do I need from this and not even know it. I could do it subconsciously that I'm thinking that this conversation needs to go a certain way or you need to treat me a certain way or you need to fulfill some sort of need in me so that I, I feel like I belong or I really want to tell you about this thing. It's about kind of erasing that, getting past that, and really regulating your own needs so that you can be fully present with somebody else. So you can really be with them and, and hear them well. That you can pick up on those subtle cues because you're not spending all of your, your brain power, all of your energy trying to get something from the conversation. The second part of this is developing others. So this is more on the lines of like those in leadership roles. Empathy really works well if you want to develop other people. That means acting on other people's needs, other people's concerns, helping them to develop to their full potential. This requires a lot of empathy and a lot of patience. Um, people with skills in this area usually are the people who praise and reward people continuously for, for any accomplishment. They provide constructive feedback. All right. um, they provide mentoring, coaching. Things like that, that, that you want and you are looking towards the other person to say, okay, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How do I understand your experience and how do I help you better? The third thing is having a service orientation. All right, primarily aimed at work or um, situations, this comes up, but I really just, I think that this should be all of our perspective if we are being apostolic, if we are being Christian, then that means that I want to put the needs of other people as a priority in my life. That's not to say to neglect your own needs. We're not forming some sort of codependency here. We want good boundaries, but in a way of I can serve other people. I can improve even this relationship by my own satisfaction or my own loyalty. All right, people who kind of have this approach that it is constantly this person first. Right, that I, I genuinely am interested in your needs. That I, I genuinely want to understand what, what do you need. Um, so Mercedes-Benz, the car manufacturer, um, has this rule. And it says that there's no more satisfied customers. So we don't want that. Um, and they sent out this memo that says they're no longer interested in achieving customer satisfaction. Now that does not mean that the customer is not important to Mercedes, but it's absolutely the opposite. So they kind of started this in, I think, 2017, but it, 
they thought that the customer experience was so important that satisfaction would not be the goal. That satisfaction is not enough. We want customers to be delighted with their Mercedes. So the company's president and CEO believed that that has to start with the employees first. So a recent company poll found that 70% of their employees had never driven a Mercedes. So they started giving them Mercedes so that they can better empathize with their customers. And I'm like, so, okay, <laughs> um, hire me, all right? But this is the point, it's because they said that it's, yes, we care about our employees, but we want you to be able to understand what they're going through so that you are more engaged in their success. And that translates to our relationships because if I am so engaged in your experience, then I want it to be a success. If I am so focused on, on understanding your experience, then suddenly I'm feeling with you, all right? Now I am way more invested in you because if I'm feeling it with you, then both of us have got to succeed, all right? Because I don't want to feel those things. I don't want you to feel those things, all right? Fourth is leveraging diversity. Now this is not some woke, everybody relax. You don't have to, you don't have to stress, okay? I feel like everybody freaks out about that and you're really not the people that need to worry about it. You're good, all right? Leveraging diversity doesn't mean that you treat everybody the same way, all right? And this is where it gets tricky, but you tailor the way you interact with other people based on who they are. This is not manipulation. This is just respect and empathy, all right? And people who really master this skill relate well to everybody. They can talk to anybody. Because, as a rule, they see the differences, the diversity, as a, a, an opportunity, as a way of learning, as a way of understanding. And people who are good at leveraging diversity, also, they really challenge intolerance and bias and stereotypes. So, Claude Steele, he was a psychologist at Stanford University. He did this series of tests on stereotypes, and he asked two groups of men and women to take a math test. So, the first group was told men actually do better at math. Men statistically are way more, way more better, way more better. I'm not good at English, so I guess whatever. Men are better at math. And so the second group was told nothing. All right, so the first group, the people who had been reminded about the stereotype before the test, the men performed significantly better than the women. There was no difference in the second group. All right, so Steele suggested that, that being reminded of the stereotypes really activated the emotional centers in the brain, producing confidence in men and anxiety in the women. And that shows how dangerous just a stereotype can be. Just being reminded that this is the statistic, this is the stereotype, there's no reality in, in that. But there's a gap between perception and reality. And if we buy into just our perception, our own stereotype, it can be really powerful and it can really influence the way that you connect with other people. So fifthly and finally is political awareness. Now, many people view politics as manipulative, right? But in its best sense, political just means sensing and responding to a group's emotional undercurrents and power relationships, right? So people with kind of a political awareness can help um, other people like achieve where perhaps they weren't able to before because they can understand um, why some people don't get things done. Political awareness is like if you walked into a room and you could say, okay, how do things get done around here? 
Who's the one calling the shots? Who's the one influencing the group? And how do I understand that? And what can I do to use that for good? All right, so your beliefs tend to reinforce kind of the data that you select and how you interpret it. So your own kind of worldview really plays into this and how you interpret it. But that could be a, um, that could be a hindrance because it can create kind of this positive feedback loop. So in a sense, that's not necessarily good, but you're constantly reminded that your own stereotypes, your own ideas are true. All right, so um, those with political awareness are able to kind of make moves, make connections. So let me um, use an example, it's a little story. So Jane uh, arranges to meet Mary for coffee at 10.30. Mary is late. She doesn't explain why. In fact, she doesn't even seem to notice that she's late. Jane decides that Mary just couldn't be bothered to show up on time. That in fact, Mary probably values her own time uh, more highly than Jane's. And Jane concludes that it's not worth bothering to meet up in the future. She's probably not going to schedule things um, because Mary obviously doesn't respect her or respect her time or doesn't want to see her. So when Mary suggests, hey, let's meet next week, Jane makes as an excuse to avoid it. At the end of all this, all Mary sees is that Jane doesn't want to meet up with her, but she has no idea why. There could be a number of reasons why Mary was late, but she hasn't explained. Perhaps she had a doctor's appointment. Perhaps it was as simple as her watch was slow and she didn't even realize. But meanwhile, Jane has just decided that the relationship is not worth pursuing. You see, here's the thing, is that if we're not aware of our own thinking, our own reasoning, then we start to make our perceptions reality. And then that's the rule by which we live by. And so every time Mary shows up, it's that positive feedback loop. Oh, she showed up late again. She really doesn't care, right? Because we've allowed our own perception to become reality. And we've got to watch that because we have to be aware of our own thinking, aware of our own reasoning. And then we have to make sure that others understand that as well. We have to be able to advocate for ourselves and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And you have to ask questions and test your own assumptions. If you really want to know what's going on, if you really want to know. And here's the thing with, with all of this, and even with the field of psychology in general, is that it's really based on empiricism. Empiricism means that things can be observed. That if I can observe it, then I know it could be true. And there's a lot that we can learn from discovered truths about the universe. All right? I know a lot about the eyeballs that the Bible doesn't say. All right? Christ is still sufficient even if I gain truths about the universe, but he's just the gravitational force for what is true. Now, here is my challenge with things like this when we talk about uh, development and psychology and thoughts and reasoning and all these things is because what psychologists like to do is just focus on what is empirical. What can I see? What can I observe? And they discount the supernatural altogether. And so when we're talking about development, there's theories on what you can do and, and, and it's going to be universal or it's going to be tailored to you and everybody has all these different ideas. But here's what I do know is that there is a supernatural element at play. That God is and able to operate in our lives and connect to us and relate to us and enact on us. And so there can be things that perhaps like you're saying, man, I need to work on this. I don't know how. I'm encouraging you to, to go out, seek feedback from people you trust, find out how, work on it. 
but do not discredit the fact that there is a supernatural person who can help you in things. That if you're saying, man, I really am bad at empathizing with people, God can help you with that. Man, I'm, I'm really bad. I'm, I'm not sure how to even relate to people, and I'm not sure how to manage my own emotions, and I'm not sure how to develop these things. God can help you. And I don't say that as like a throwaway statement or a cliche moment, but I see so many people who discredit that, who don't know that that's a part of it or don't believe that it can happen, and it can. It absolutely can. And it may be one of those things that you have to go through a series of, of learning and mastery and learning and mastery, and God can be with you every step of the way to give you wisdom, to give you knowledge, to help you and let the Spirit work in you in these ways to say, okay, God, you know what? If you can heal the blind, then you can help me relate to people. If you can raise the dead, then you can certainly help me with my own awareness of my emotions. And that's the truth. So if you would, why don't we bow our heads and just pray. Lord, thank you, God, that you're not an impersonal God, but that you care about us and that you're active in our lives and that you want to help us and you want to help us to relate to people. I pray, oh God, that you would just help us to search our own hearts and our minds and that we would ask you, Lord, to help us in any area that we lack, whether that be our own regulation of our emotions, our own self-awareness, God, or our own motivations. Help us, oh God, to be able to empathize with other people and to relate to other people in a way that we could bring you glory. That ultimately, in the end, God, that whatever our hands find to do, we could do it for your glory. That we could do all of these things, Lord, in, in a way that we could relate to other people, that we could be able to share your truth, that we could be able to share your light and your gospel. I pray, oh Lord, that you would go with us and help us every step of this way, Lord, in this journey of, of discovering and improving ourselves and how we react and how we enact your will. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.